0: Jesus Christ, I I am so grateful that you are all-sufficient, that you give us all that we need. In fact, you give us in salvation uh, through our connection to you. The Word of God says that all the blessings of God are yes and amen in Christ. We don't, not a single person here understands the full gravity of that reality. But we're growing in what that means. Grateful, so grateful here. Grateful to be your people. Grateful that you're meeting here with us right now as we come in the name of Christ. Through your spirit we long that Your Spirit would have just absolute freedom here I know that Your Holy Spirit is a gentleman and that He longs to work and do great things for the glory of the Son in our lives and help us to be responsive to that. To be surrendered and receptive and obedient to faith, to step out and ask the God of the impossible to do the impossible when we need that. God, I, I just pray over this body. I am I am so thankful that you. I don't know why you did it. Twenty-two years, twenty, almost twenty-three years ago, you you placed me here, and I don't have the greatest memory. But as I think back over the last two plus decades. You have just always been faithful. You have always been faithful. Witnessed you, Father, perform so many miracles. Showing that you are alive and well and involved in the lives of your people. And that when we seek you with all of our heart that you are draw near to us as we draw near and that you display your power and your glory and Lord there are some here this morning that need that you know each situation I pray for their blessing Lord I pray that the joy of the Lord will be their strength I pray that you would draw them into your secret counsel. That your word would become alive in new ways to them. That they would have sweet times of intimate commune with you those who are hurting God be close to the broken hearted restore their soul lead them beside quiet waters for your name's sake Those who need an answer from you that are facing significant situations where they need wisdom from above, I grant it to them, I pray. Show yourself to be the caring God who understands, who knows, who has all wisdom. those who need to be delivered, Lord, from something emotional or physical or relational financial you're the deliverer by your stripes we are healed move, I pray manifest your presence here Reveal your glory here. Exhibit your excellence, even right now and the rest of our time here together this morning. Exhibit your excellence in this place. Thank you for your word. Send it out in power. Minister to people through your word today. Open eyes and minds and hearts. It's a heavy, deep word today. Help me to share it And to balance grace with truth. To be full of grace and truth. Through the power of your spirit like Jesus came full of grace and truth. Those things do not compete. They are perfectly complementary. Grace and truth. Help me to do that in this next 30-40 minutes here. Christ's name, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. I, <clears throat> I just want to want to encourage you um, with something that encouraged me on Friday. Um, I didn't actually didn't even tell this to the first service. Um so, you kind of get the bonus this morning, okay? you slackers coming in late for the second service, get the bonus okay. went to uh, it was a just a well known evangelical uh, pastor um, uh, that was in Anchorage with his team, his ministry team, uh, James Mcdonald <clears throat> Friday night and It was, I mean, it was, I didn't try to get the word out. I think I sent the email that I got with a link for notification several months ago to one person, Um, but there was like 50 people from Cornerstone there and all kind of sitting in one section in the large auditorium and during the worship time, great time of worship, I mean the whole night was great, but great time of worship, and the worship leader just um, almost got a little un- maybe uncomfortable, wondering what was going on, but just kept looking over at our section, just smiling and just kind of riveted on our, on our section, all the Cornerstone family there, not knowing who we were, where where anybody was from. There's a thousand people in the room. and So anyway, at the end of the night there was some of us from the staff and some other people from the church here, probably 10, 12 of us just standing in a circle there at the front of the room and uh, everybody pretty much left. The room was pretty empty and this worship pastor comes over and he kind of just butts into our circle there and he said, "You know, are you guys all from the same church?" He said, "Yeah." and he said, this whole, this whole section right here, yeah." he said, "Long story short," he said, And he was a phenomenal worship leader, almost as good as Ash. He said, "You know i I can play a few chords." And I can sing a few notes. But my real gift is uh, that God has given this to me. um, I've used for 20 years. I can look into people's eyes and I can just see the spirit of God when he's working in their lives. And he said, strange thing is I just looking at all of your church people, and it is striking. God is doing some incredible stuff in this group of people. Incredible stuff. And he kept talking a little bit, and a few minutes later, about 10 of the 12 of us around the circle were just bawling. I mean, he just, he was so encouraging. And I I just, thinking here this morning as I stepped up here for this service, that really encouraged me. I hope that it encourages you. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying anything about yay Cornerstone over any other church. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just, I'm just talking about a recognition of the work of the Spirit of God uh, taking place among a people, and I, I'm thankful to God for that. So that's the good news, and it's, I would have been wise to have started with that uh, the first service because the message is a whole lot of hard news. <laughs> so you got the good news first. If you'll stick with me, we'll come full circle and we'll get to some good news at the end, but there's going to be a period of some pretty weighty stuff that we're going to walk through here this morning. Is that okay? Okay, Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. We are walking through this letter. It's verse by verse. We've come to Romans chapter 7, verse 7. Let me give you just a couple statements to remind you or to set the stage, whether you've been here or not, to set the stage of what's taken place in Romans chapter 7 to this point. Paul is writing this chapter to defend the law of God. He's writing this chapter to the legalist. The legalist who, listening to Paul's preaching about the gospel of grace that comes freely through Jesus Christ, those who were listening to that, uh, some of the Jews that were saying to Paul, you are going to encourage people to live a lawless life. Because Paul had made a couple of statements in Romans chapter 6, to in fact, about the law. Where it seemed like what he was saying was that he was discounting the law. He was just taking the law of God and throwing it out and saying that it was no good. And so... The legalist was accusing Paul with his preaching regarding Jesus Christ and the grace offered through Christ that he was going to actually promote people to live godless, lawless lives. And so, what he does in chapter 7 is that he is identifying that misunderstanding of his teaching and he is clarifying it just like he did in chapter six with those who said, Hey, if grace superabounds when sin increases, man, let's sin some more so that grace increases more. He dealt with that heresy in chapter six. Now he's on the other side of the equation dealing with the legalist who is accusing him of producing people who are lawless. So what he does in verse 1 <clears throat> is that he establishes a principle, a principle that would be easy to understand, a legal principle. And the principle is simply this, death ends the jurisdiction of the law in a person's life. The law is good and in effect until death. And then the jurisdiction, the limits, the authority of the law has then ended. Does that make sense? Pretty obvious, right? Then in verses 2 and 3, he gives an illustration to show that. Very simple illustration. He talks about a marriage. Woman married to a man. Husband dies. What happens to the wife in relationship to the law of marriage? It's ended for her. She's no longer bound. Then what he does is he comes to the main point in chapter four, in verse 4. He stated the legal principle given an illustration, and then in verse 4, he comes to the, to the real propositional truth he wants to establish, and it, the propositional truth is this. Talking to followers of Christ, believers in Christ, he says that you likewise, have died to the law. That you have, as a follower of Christ, you have died to the law. That the limits of the law's authority, its jurisdiction over your life, it's ended. One of the reasons he was being accused of... Promoting lawlessness in people's lives. So what he is going to do is he is going to explain that statement. He is going to explain that in fact his message does not promote lawlessness. It is in fact the only truth that guarantees holiness. But he's got to wade into some deep stuff to teach that. He's got to go through some bad news in order to set the backdrop upon which the good news can be communicated. So verse 7, here's the question. Verse 7, part A, first half of the verse. What then shall we say? Here's Here's the indictment that was being leveled against him. Is the law sin? Paul, aren't you saying that the law is sin? And his emphatic answer immediately is, by no means, exclamation point. And now he's going to explain why. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. What I want to do this morning is I want to tell you three benefits of the law. Three benefits of the law. They're going to sound like negative benefits or negative liabilities, but they are incredible benefits. If you'll hear me out, we'll get to that. Here's number one. The law shows us our sinful depravity. The law shows us our sinful depravity. Did you hear what Paul said? If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what sin really was. I would not have known that I, in fact, was the sinner had it not been for the law. That is incredible Coming from the man who was quite possibly the chief student of the law of his day. The young man who was head and shoulders advanced beyond the other upstanding Jewish young men in his knowledge and understanding and studying of the Scriptures. See what Paul is saying here is that prior to knowing Jesus Christ, we have a vision problem. We have a vision problem. Before we come to accept Christ as our Savior, we have a vision problem, and here's the problem we don't see ourselves like we should. We don't see sin for what it is, and ourself in the midst of that equation of sin. We don't see it. We are blind to it. We have a vision problem. The solution to the problem is that we would come to see ourselves as God does. God's vision is perfect. If you believe that, say amen. God's vision is perfect. God sees us, not through a cloudy, Reflect a mirror, not in a cloudy mirror, not through a poor reflection. God sees us with perfect crystal clarity. So what is God's perspective, God's vision of a person who has not accepted his son as their savior? What is God's comprehensive assessment of their life? We could look at many places of Scripture to get an answer for that. Let me give you just a few. We could go way back in the early days of human history. Kind of just this side of the Genesis of time there. And we could read in Genesis chapter 6 where God looks down at the human race. And He makes this Concise yet comprehensive statement about the reality of the human condition. Not just generally, but every single human heart. And here's what he says. He looks down and he says, Every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. Wow! Every intention is only evil continually. That is a comprehensive statement. We could listen to the words of the wise sage in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs who said this, No heart can say, I am clean and without sin. No heart can say, I am clean and without sin. We could read the words of the prophet Isaiah, great prophet of the Old Testament. Who described the human condition, including himself with these words. We are like sheep who have gone astray. That all of us have become unclean. That all of our righteous acts are as filthy rags. That's a pretty poignant description. Or we could look at the pen, read the words of the pen, the inspired pen of King David, who gave this comprehensive statement about every single human that is without Christ in Psalms 53, 2 through 3. Remember the question, How does God see those who are unsaved? God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. God's penetrating, perfect, and crystal clear perspective of the human condition, every single human condition that is without Jesus Christ, his perspective of that reality is that all of them are comprehensively depraved. So here's the here's the problem in a sequence of statements prior to salvation. We will not embrace the truth of that statement until it is understood. We've got to, I'm starting at the end and working backwards. If we're going to embrace the truth of that statement, that that's really who we are, then we have to understand the statement. Take it back a step further. If we're going to understand that statement and really realize its depth, we've got to come to the point where we believe what the Word of God says about it. Coming back a step further, it's not going to be believed until it's seen. And coming back a step further, it's not going to be seen until the Spirit of the living God brings the revelation that that is the reality if you are without Christ of your condition. And what is it that the Spirit of God uses to do that? The Spirit of God uses the law of God. To reveal to the heart the depths of sin that are there and its depravity. So that Paul said, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Romans chapter 7, part B. Paul said, what the law did for me is that it revealed to me the reality of sin and my part in it. That's what the law does. The law helps us to see the reality of our depraved nature. Now, Paul is quoting there in Romans chapter 7. I mean, yeah, Romans 7, 7. He's quoting from... The Ten Commandments, the tablets cut out and described by the very finger of God, given to Moses, the last of the commandments, you shall not covet. That's what he's quoting there in Romans 7, 7. I wouldn't have even understood what that meant, Paul said, unless the law had not said to me, you shall not covet. I would have never come to the understanding of what coveting is. goes on to then say, and when I heard it, oh boy, did the acts of covetousness spring up in my life. We'll get to that in a minute. So here's a question. At what, to what period of his life is Paul writing about here in Romans 7, 7b? Is he saying that I wouldn't have even understood what it meant to covet something unless my mommy and my daddy, when I was a little toddler, had taken me to the Ten Commandments and taught me that. And as they explained the Ten Commandments to me, wow, I understood then what coveting was. That's not what Paul is talking about here. How are we to understand the statement? Well, we need to, we need to learn from Paul himself by listening to what Paul said about himself in Philippians. In Philippians, Paul was writing to a letter to a letter to the church at Philippi and he was explaining his position before coming to Christ. What he used to brag about before coming to Christ when he was a legalist, when he was the Jew that was self-righteous and engaged in rigorous religious calisthenics continually. And he wrote in Philippians about that period in his life. And listen to what he says in Philippians 3, 4, and 6. Stick with the train of thought here and it'll make sense in a moment. He writes, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And now he's going to list seven great truths about his life prior to Christ that would be the envy of the Jewish people. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. But not only of the people of Israel, man, I'm of that special tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, how does my life relate to the law? I'm a Pharisee. And who are the Pharisees? They are the most zealous observers of the law of God. I'm a persecutor of the church. I was a persecutor of that heretic, Jesus Christ, and those who followed him. I was zealous about it. And then listen to his last bragging point that puts the cap on it all. As to righteousness under the law, what? Blameless. I was the perfect Jew. I was the Jew that dotted every I and crossed every T in external obedience to the law. I was the epitome of Judaism. Then, here's what happens. Paul comes to Jesus Christ. He meets Christ and is justified. And he is then writing about his life. This little tidbit here. He is writing facetiously saying, Man, if any of you can brag, I could brag more than you. But he goes on to talk about how it's all absolutely worthless and filthy rags. And here is what he comes to the conclusion about himself. Other side of Christ. Having accepted Christ, his conclusion before he was the blameless Jew. Here's what he says now. I am the chief of sinners. There is no one worse than me. How did he go from absolutely perfect blameless righteousness and obedience to the law, his opinion of himself, over here to, I am absolutely the chief of sinners on the planet. No one has drawn a breath on this planet that's as bad as me. How did he get from those polar perspectives? Well, here's what happened. Right in the middle, the law of God opened up his eyes and took care of his vision problem. The spirit of God took the law of God. And here is what he did. He cut through the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. He cut through that wall of self righteousness, that seven layered wall of self righteousness that he stated there in Philippians, that bragging pedigree spiritual pedigree, that the Spirit of God took the law of God and he pierced through that and then he cut it, he rent it, and then he ripped it asunder so that all of it fell away and this vision problem that Paul had where he saw himself so flawless was radically changed and he saw himself absolutely guilty, absolutely depraved absolutely in need of a Savior with nothing whatsoever to bring to God to commend Himself. That all of His spiritual, religious calisthenics In the external obediences to the law were absolutely a bunch of junk in the corner, a pile of garbage, filthy rags, and he had nothing to come to God with. Absolutely nothing that merited him anything. You see, the law of God, one of the great works of the law of God, is that first work. It brings us to the reality of our depraved spiritual condition. It has to do that. That has to be what takes place if the benefit is going to come. We'll explain that more in a few minutes. Here's the second great thing that the law does. The law not only shows the individuals, Paul said, that he is a depraved sinner. The law shows the grossness of sin itself. The law shows how black sin is. It shows how utterly wicked and evil sin itself is. Verse eight. Listen to him describe it. But sin. Seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Sin seized the opportunity through the commandment, through the law of God. That word opportunity there in the Greek, interesting word. Oh, does it give color? to the t- to the teaching being done here it is the word in the greek used for a military base like a base of operations now think through that paul is saying here that sin seized the opportunity Through the law. In other words, the law established a military base, a base of operations from which sin could then launch forth in the attack, in the attempt to gain more ground that the law actually became like the launching pad, the place in which it could get some traction and from there move forward into Paul's life and take more ground and stir it up, stir sin up and fan it into flame. Picture is like a Going into enemy territory and behind enemy lines, setting up a military base and fortifying it. And then from that location, then advancing from there into the enemy's territory to take it over. And Paul says, sin uses the law that way in the life of the unbeliever. Uses the, uh, uses the law, the good law of God, the holy law of God, the law of God given by the God of love, the God of holiness, the God of justice. Sin uses that God's holy law as a base of operation in the life of someone who does not know Christ. point here is... This should show us the wicked, evil nature of sin itself. Show us behind sin is a real enemy. And that enemy hates God, hates God. I can't say that with enough emotion to get it across as I should. Satan hates God with every fiber of its being. And he hates you. He hates humanity because we have been created in what? The image of God. And so he is not. He's impotent against God. So he wants to come against us and he wants to use us to hurt God, to fight against God, to use us as vehicles, as weapons to strike at God with. That's what sin is doing. It is taking The precious, holy law of God and using it as a base of operation, a launching point from which to strike out at God in hate. And listen, folks, that means sin of all kinds. Not just the sin that you really hate. All sin, because it all is made of the same inherent substance. It is rebellion against God whether it comes in its gross, overt forms or whether it comes in its subtle kind of an inch or two to the right or an inch or two to the left form. Sin is sin. It just packaged a little differently, but at its heart is that, that, Passionate, burning, white hot hatred. And so, what Paul is trying to teach here, and folks, I believe what the American Christian church needs to come to a deeper and a more clear understanding of is the nature of sin. That we would see it for what it is, not as just a, a minor detour to the left or to the right. It is all out hatred toward God. I don't mean that you mean it like that when you sin. I mean that is the heart of the enemy and the tool of sin that he uses. It is fashioned in absolute, utter, complete hatred for God. So what sin does is it uses this good and holy law of God. In its wicked, evil, utterly depraved condition, to use the perfect law of God to strike out in hatred toward God. Now, I don't believe that we need much explanation on how that happens in the human heart because it's all of our stories pre Christ. But I'll just give you the one, the chief, the preeminent example in Scripture. And the reason that it is, is because it's the first example. And it is the pattern from which every other occurrence flows. Garden of Eden. And what the striking thing is about this story is that in the Garden of Eden, God created Adam and Eve, and he put them in a utopia. He put them in a perfect environment, a place of absolute abundance, a place of health and safety, a place of perfect communion with himself, and he created them without sin so they have pure hearts. And then what God did was he gave one prohibition. Just one, one prohibition. One commandment. One law. Don't eat of this tree. And what happened in that environment. Sin took the law of God. Satan the tempter took the law of God. And he used it as an opportunity. He used it as a launching pad. In which to strike out. Against those created in the image of God and ultimately against God Himself. Now, how He accomplished that, I don't understand. And I don't think anybody is going to answer that question this side of heaven. Of how He could get a perfectly sinless heart to buy into that lie. But here's what I do understand. And that is that since that happened, we are all sons of Adam or daughters of Eve. And the sinful nature that they acquired at the fall through procreation, they passed on to us so that we, unlike them, do not enter this world and begin the store our story in a sinless condition. We are already messed up. We are already existing with a heart bent towards sin, a condition the spirit the word calls spiritual death. That's already our condition. Our bent is there. We are already rebels. The reality of our inward condition is sin and then the outworking of that sin singular and then the the principle of our life and then the outwork of that is the sins, the byproducts, the acts that we commit that are from the parent principle that is the reality of our nature, sinful nature. So what happens then is that the enemy who was able to dupe two pure hearts now comes to marred hearts bent towards sin and the law of God is used by him as a beachhead. The law of God is shared and He plays upon that strategically to use it as a beachhead in that life to launch forth from there and to take more ground and to fan into flame that that ember that for the moment might be smoldering there, that ember of rebellion that might be fairly quiet and smoldering, but it hears the law of God and he uses that as a fan to flame that ember so that, it's, so that it ignites into a flame and then roars up into an inferno until it consumes that life. That's what the enemy is doing right there. And what I believe Paul is trying to teach us here is he wants you to see how it works so you understand how brutal sin is, how wicked, how utterly evil and hateful sin is. And he's telling us that if we understand how it works and uses the law of God as that beachfront, as that base of operation, that we'll come to see sin in a more true light so that we have a right perspective of it and a right perspective of ourselves in relationship to it. Pre-salvation. Verse 9 and 10, Paul writes... I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. What does Paul mean there when he says, I was once alive apart from the law? If we just do a quick reading there without context, we could absolutely pervert that truth he's trying to communicate. We could completely misunderstand it. I mean, we could read it as if it was saying that at one point, Paul in his earlier life, before Christ, before the law, he was at one point alive. He was living a good life in obedience, but then the law came to him and it killed him. But what we know, if we understand the full counsel of the New Testament is that you enter this world dead. You enter it physically alive and spiritually dead. You enter it with a a damic nature, a sinful nature, and you are guilty and under the wrath of God from the moment that you enter into this world. And you know where we got most of the teaching about that in the New Testament? From the apostle called Paul. So he's not contradicting himself here and saying Previous to Christ, at one point he was alive. No, what he's saying is this, and the context so clearly points this out. If you're following the thought process here, he is saying that before in my life, when I was this legalist, this zealous Jew, this external obedience to the law, I thought that I was alive. I thought that I was, as he said in Philippians, Perfectly righteous from a legalistic, blameless standpoint related to the law. And I thought I was alive. And then the law came to me. I had somehow through the work of the Spirit of God, he penetrated my self-righteousness and stripped away that Blindness, and I saw myself for what I really was. I thought I was alive, but when the law came to recognition and conviction, I realized, oh my, I was so dead. I was so dead. That's what he's saying there. I was once alive apart from the law. In other words, I thought that I was once alive apart from the law, but under the penetrating conviction of the law, sin sprang up and I realized that I was in fact absolutely a depraved sinner. That is the repeated context over and over again here. And so... In that unsaved, guilty, rebellious condition. That here's the reality of the human condition. We are always enticed by forbidden fruit. That's it. And it's when we are told this is the forbidden fruit. That the beachhead is established. And from that position. There is the attack. So what we have pre-Christ is we have this beast in our life. This beast of rebellion. A beast that we were born with. And at times that beast lays dormant. Maybe not a lot of activity in in a period of time. But what will cause that beast to rise up? and bare its teeth, and lash out in bloodlust, it will be the law of God. The beautiful, good, holy law of God. So, number one, benefits of the law. It shows us our sinful, depraved condition. Number two, it really helps us to understand how bad, black, evil, sin really is. And number three, it brings us to the end of ourself. It brings us to the end of ourself. And oh, what a great place that is to be. Because if we stayed over here behind those walls that Paul had, had painted of himself, those self-righteous walls, and felt good about ourselves, like Paul had said, I thought it was alive then. If we stayed there, you know where we're going to end up? Anybody willing to say it? Where are we going to end up? We're going to end up in hell. We're going to end up in hell if that's where we stay. But what the law does is that it brings us to the end of ourself as it convicts and penetrates and cuts and strips away that self-righteousness. And it shows us who we truly are in our depraved state and how wicked sin truly is so that we come to the end of ourself. And then we are ready to come before God and say, oh, God, nothing in my hands do I bring. But only to the cross do I cling. That there is nothing in us, not one frack, not one grain of moral sand, not one piece of moral ground that we can stand on to commend ourselves to God. We are absolutely, utterly, hopelessly broken and depraved. And it's when we come to that place that we are then ready to have Jesus Christ offer the free grace of God that he died to give us so that it can be lavished on our lives. And until we get to that bottom place to where we are absolutely stripped bare in naked shame and guilt before the Holy God, then and only then are we ready to have an encounter with the greatest gift in the universe, the grace of God available through Jesus, then and only then. So that's what the law of God does is it brings us to the end of ourselves once it has shown us our sinful state and helped us get a picture of what sin is. Verse 11, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Again, what is Paul saying there? Is he saying that he wasn't dead Before that, no, that's not what he's saying. The context tells us that what he is saying is, I thought I was alive. But when the Spirit of God took the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, which is a part of the law of God, and he used that to penetrate my self-righteousness and cut it and strip it away, what happened was I realized that I was in fact Dead. It killed me. I.E., then I came to the end of myself. You know where the end of yourself is? Death. That's the end. And Paul said, that's what the law did. The law was used by the Spirit of God to penetrate, to cut, and to rend and remove the vision problem that I had so that I saw myself as I truly was so that then and only then with nothing of merit to my account could I come before the Lord Jesus Christ and receive His grace. Because if you come with anything, if you come with one grain of moral sand in your bag, maybe it was a bag full of self-righteousness and you dumped out the entire bag, but you left a grain and thought, well, God's doing 99.99% of it and I've got this one little grain that I bring. If that's you, you don't understand the grace of God. The grace of God is all of God and none of you. It's an insult to the lavished grace of God, the grace that cost him his son for you to bring even one grain as a commendation of yourself to God. It is to the heart of God broken and laid bare in recognition of guilt and repentance that is open for the outpouring of the lavish grace of God. So those are good things. They sound like such bad things that the law does. But they are such blessed things because they are the very things that will bring you to the place so that you can enter into the greatest reality in the universe. And that is faith in Jesus Christ. So that what happens in that faith at the end of yourself, where you put all your faith in Jesus alone, you are baptized into Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God, and you are then united to Him. You are united to him Paul has been telling that over and over and over again Now do you see why this answers the question of verse 7 logical progression Paul started by stating the accusations some were making to his ministry is the law sin And what he has shown is, in fact, the law is not sin. It's simply what sin uses to show us how brutal we are and how brutal sin is. But the law is such a blessing because it brings us to the end of ourselves so that we can come into the grace of God and be saved. And then and only then, will we really begin to live lives according to the law of God? That's the only way we're going to live lives according to God's law. It'll never be by legalistic righteousness. So you legalists are saying, I'm promoting a lawless life, Paul says. And in fact, you are living in a depraved state. You are living a lawless life. The reality of what it means to live a life in the law of God is to accept his grace and then out of that new position to live the law of God based upon a new desire, a law that is written in the heart, not written on stone, not an impotent ability over here, but one that is now living and active through the power of the Spirit of God. That's the only way you're going to be able to live a life according to God's truth. So in fact, they were exactly wrong in saying, Paul, your message promotes lawlessness. In fact, the only way anyone can live according to God's plan is through Christ and his salvation. Now, let me Let me close with this. It is, it's a great irony. It just hit me this morning as I was going over this in my mind. Prior to salvation, let me just keep with my visual sides of the stage here. It seems like always when I, I do this, I'm always using this side as the bad side. You guys aren't bad people, okay? Maybe, maybe sometime you need to switch. Pretty soon everybody's going to be sitting over here. Now, what in the world was I just saying? <laughs> so w- what happens is on this side of Christ, prior to accepting Christ, we have a vision problem. Remember, we have a vision problem. We don't see ourselves rightly, and we don't see the law of God or sin rightly. We we don't understand that we are depraved sinners and how wicked sin truly is. We have a vision problem. And what The spirit of God and the law of God do to solve that problem is that the spirit uses the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God within which is the law of God to cut through the self-righteousness and rend it and rip it loose so that the vision problem is shred and drops away so that we see ourselves as we truly are. So the vision problem on this side is that we see ourselves far better than we are. Does that make sense? We see ourselves as Paul used to see himself. As, remember, I was a blameless Jew. We see ourselves without the depravity. Then when we get saved, It is so ironic that we have a vision problem again. And our Christian life is a process of getting that vision problem taken care of. But the problem is exactly the opposite on this side. I told you I'd end with some good news. Here it comes. Anybody ready for some good news? Here it comes. That on this side of the equation, the vision problem is that we don't see ourselves as we truly should. We don't understand what it means that we are in. Christ and united to Christ and the reality of that condition in all of its unbelievable glory and majesty and blessing. We only understand a fraction of that truth and we see ourselves way down here and yet God sees us Way up there, seated at the right hand of the very throne of God itself. That with Christ, in Christ, all that is Christ's is ours. That the full righteousness of Jesus Christ is our righteousness. That we are no longer under the law. We have died to sin and we are in an entirely new reality forevermore. And that before us, if I could picture it, before us is seated, a ba- is a banquet table at which we are seated. And it has every single blessing of God in the way of gourmet food on it. Laid before us by the unlimited wisdom and power and love of the Creator. Creator. Remember that in Christ are all the blessings of God, yes and amen. If you're in Christ, everything on the table is yours. And yet, we have a vision problem, and we sit there and we starve in front of the table. Heaven's table laden with all of the blessings of the omnipotent God at our disposal. And what the Christian life is about could be framed with that picture. What the Christian life is about is about us coming to understand who we truly are having been united to Jesus Christ. In fact, I've told you this many times in the last two and a half years in Romans that what the New Testament always does and what Paul does over and over again is that he couches the subject of sanctification. It's a big word. It means your growth in Christian character, your growth in Christ-like character, that the way that you grow in Christ-like character is directly connected to your understanding of who you are. It is directly, you cannot separate it from that understanding because when you begin to grasp more and more of who you are and what you have and what is yours, you are fighting the battle from a place of victory, indefeatable victory. But when you don't, you're over here in your mind. You're not over here literally in God's eyes, but you're over here in your mind and you're saying, oh man, it's just going to be this, you know, this failure after failure after defeat after defeat until I get all the way to heaven and finally I'm going to be changed. No, that's not the plan. That is not the plan. He will begin a good work in you doesn't pause it until the day of Christ Jesus. No, He who began a good work in you will carry it on. Will move it forward. That God, in fact, works in you. God, omnipotent God through the person of His Spirit works in you both to will and to act according to His good purpose. So basically, we could just ask the question, well then, who should win, God or the enemy? If God is working in you, both to will and to act according to his good purpose, then where the rubber meets the road in your spiritual life, who should be winning, God or the enemy? It should be God because he's working in you, meaning you should be growing in holiness. You should be growing in Christ-like character. And so the way that you do that is that you first of all reckon, Paul told us this in Romans chapter 5 you reckon you come to understand what the truth is about who you are in Christ and then from that position and that growing understanding then you begin to utilize what God has given to help you grow, now watch this last statement Just as the vision problem on this side of the equation was solved as the Spirit of God took the Word of God, i.e. the law of God, and cut through the prideful heart and penetrated and ripped away and laid asunder so that We could see ourselves as we are in our need and come to Christ. Spirit of God, using the Word of God to do that. On this side of the equation, the vision problem where we don't see ourselves as we truly should, it is the Spirit of God that uses the Word of God, same two realities, to help us understand who we are as children of God so that we would live for the glory of God. Would you please stand? I'm going to give you an opportunity as we close. We're going to we're going to have a time of communion for Sunday of the month here. Great picture here in the elements of what we've been talking about. Because everything is related to the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the elements in communion are broken bread signifying the broken body of Jesus. And Jews signifying the spilled blood of Jesus. Body broken, blood spilled to pay for your sin. So it is really symbols not of defeat. It's symbols of victory for us. And so communion is for Everyone who has accepted Christ as their Savior or for anyone here today that wants to do that this morning who has come to the realization that you are undone in your guilt before God and that Jesus Christ this morning is offering to you. I promise you he is. He died to make the offer possible. He rose to guarantee it and he's offering to you this morning the grace that he wants to lavish on your life and take you from being dead in your sin to alive in the spirit forevermore. And if you are making that decision today, putting your faith in Christ, you can receive communion for the first time. You can leave here absolutely knowing that your destiny is secure and that you're on the path, the highway toward heaven. So let me just pray and then the ushers will pass out the elements, Father. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your good law in the hands of this, your good Holy Spirit that does the good work of showing us who we truly are. So that we would come to the point at the end of ourselves to accept your offer of grace and then to realize through the truth as the Spirit communicates it that we are in Christ and all that is His is ours. Help us to live in that reality in Christ's name. Amen. Ushers, would you just begin to pass that out? What you can do here, you can just take those elements. You could come to the altar. If you want to do that, as you remember, we're going to have some songs uh, that are played as we just reflect and remember on what Christ has done for us. You can come and pray as we do that. You can stand where you're at. Let's just remember. Celebrate the victory of Christ.